part of the experience of life is developing your own personal worldview. We're shaped by our experiences and we process those experiences through our personality and we draw certain conclusions about the way the world works, about what life is about, how life works, and other important questions. Now, some people do this without realizing it. There's very little thought given to what the meaning of life is. And for them, the greatest influencer in their development of their worldview, how they see the world, how they process things, is their experiences. This isn't to be so for the Christian. Yes, experience plays a huge part in the way we uh, interpret our world. But our experience does not have the ultimate authority of truth. That position is held by God's word. It can be difficult as Christians, people who want to know and understand and rightly apply God's word to our lives. It can be hard to allow God's word to take that primary role in developing our worldview, especially when it comes to correcting it. Experience affects how we interpret God's word. There's, there's no doubt about it. But God's word must impact how we understand and process our own experiences. Now I say all this because this morning we're going to cover a difficult, hard, and controversial topic. Because those are the most fun, right? <laughs> this morning I'm going to talk about we're going, to, we're going to do a study on what the Bible says about alcohol. I have, um, being your pastor, we didn't go through a traditional um, uh, process of application and interviews and all that kind of stuff. I was invited to come and preach here over two years ago, and it was the first March. Justice was two weeks old, and... I just kind of kept on going, and you all decided, yeah, we would like for you to be our pastor. And so we never got to discuss things like this. So I thought it might be important for you all to know what my personal view is, and if my personal view is not based upon what the Bible says, it doesn't matter, does it? So we're going to do a study this morning on what the Bible says about alcohol, and I'm going to have fun, and I, I hope you enjoy it as well. <laughs> Um, now, as with every other topic concerning life, the Bible has a very nuanced view of alcohol, meaning um, it's, it's robust. There's a lot of, um, it takes a, a wide view. It's not hardcore. It's not a black or white issue. So from the get-go, I want to be honest with you. My personal experience, I grew up in a home where there was no consumption of alcohol. I've not suffered from the abuse of alcohol. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. I know that many of you do not have that same experience. Many of you have been the victims of alcohol abuse. You've had marriages fail from alcohol. 
You've had other ruined relationships, broken families, maybe even physical abuse because someone in your life abused alcohol. For that, my heart breaks. It truly does. I'm sorry that you've had that experience. And I hate that we live in a world where that happens. All of us need to do everything we can to make sure that that doesn't take place in our personal lives. Because we are in control of the lives that we live. And if alcoholism or drunkenness is a problem, it needs to be rectified. If there's a problem for you, you need to get counseling, and we'll talk about that in a minute. All that being said, we have to be careful not to allow past experiences as difficult, as hard, as painful as they are to dictate to us how we interpret God's word on on any given topic. It doesn't matter what the topic is, but for us this morning, that topic is going to be alcohol. So I do need to add a caveat that I'm not going to exhaust this topic. I could do so in a month if you gave me four weeks to preach on it. But in one sermon, I'm not going to exhaust. I'm not going to cover every argument for um, drinking alcohol or every argument for not drinking alcohol. What I'm going to try to do is give you a wide view on what the Bible says about alcohol. And we're going to begin in the first place we see the word wine in the Bible. And you are not going to be surprised at the first place we see wine in the Bible. We also find the first instance of drunkenness. Noah, in chapter 9 of Genesis, we read, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. I have three points that we're going to get from this passage. First, wine in the Bible is an alcoholic beverage. You may be surprised to learn that there are people, evangelicals and Baptists and a bunch of other sorts, who will argue that wine in the Bible wasn't an alcoholic beverage. It didn't have alcohol in it, or if it did, it was, you know, one or two percent and it wasn't enough to actually get drunk on. Well, it's clear from this text that that's just not true. I mean, Noah drank enough to get drunk. So wine in the Bible contains alcohol. How, how could Noah have gotten drunk drinking this wine if it didn't have enough alcohol in it? Paul says in Ephesians, don't get drunk with wine. So wine in the Bible is an alcoholic beverage. Um, historically, wine was not, uh, uh, excuse me, grape juice was not invented until 1869. 1869, that wasn't that long ago when you take into consideration the history of mankind. So for them to get wine, to pick the grapes, to press the grapes, to get the juice out, if you were to drink the juice right then, yeah, sure, it wouldn't have any alcohol in it. But the longer it sat and fermented, they had no way to keep it from fermenting and becoming alcoholic, or uh, containing alcohol. A man by the name of Dr. Thomas Welch was a man who invented the system to create unfermented grape juice. He was a physician, a dentist, and a minister in the Methodist Church. He was an advocate for the temperance movement. It was a movement that 
that promoted abstaining from alcohol because in America at that time, alcohol became rampant. Alcoholism was on the rise. And to combat that, the Methodist church and other churches um, advocated for the abstinence of alcohol, no drinking of alcohol. But that was over 1,800 years after Christ. The second point, not only is wine in the Bible an alcoholic beverage, but you can, you can drink too much. That should go without saying. You can drink too much, and when you do, you do stupid stuff. You do stupid stuff when you drink too much alcohol. It kind of goes without saying, but we're establishing the base, basics here. I lean to be libertarian. So if Noah wants to go in his tent and lie uncovered, it's his tent. He can do what he wants. But what the Bible is getting at is that that was abnormal. People didn't do that. So when Noah lied in his tent uncovered, he was doing something that people under normal conditions don't do. Nakedness in the scriptures was sacred because people aren't just physical beings. We're spiritual beings. And so when Noah did this, it was odd. It was not within cultural norms. And so he did something stupid because he had too much to drink. And that goes into my third point, which also um, is an obvious truth. And that is that people abuse alcohol. We have to keep that in mind. There doesn't really need to be a lot more said about it. You don't have to look very far to see people acting ignorantly, foolishly, violently because of the alcohol content in their body. But we must keep it in mind just as a rote fact because it becomes even more important than you might think as we explore what the Bible has to say about alcohol. My next point is a point that is going to launch us into the remainder of this sermon, and it may come as a shock to you. Wine in the Bible is a good thing. Wine in the Bible is a good thing. We'll begin in Genesis chapter 27. Jacob is stealing Esau's blessing. And so he goes into Isaac... And he convinces lying to his father that he is his elder brother. He convinces his father, who's going blind, to give him his brother's blessing. And what is that blessing? Isaac says to Jacob, May God give you the dew of the sky and the riches of the earth and plenty of grain and new wine. And Isaac's blessing to his son he says, may God give you plenty of wine. Why would he say that if wine in the Bible was bad? It was a blessing to have plentiful wine. Throughout the Torah, which is God's law, the first five books of the Bible, his instructions to his people Israel, he commands them to offer wine in their offerings. The offering was supposed to be a sacrifice. 
over and over and over again. To offer the Lord a drink offering was to give him a portion of your wine. He's not calling them to repent. He's not calling him to dump it down the streets. This is an offering. This is a sacrifice. This is giving to God something that is good, that would be pleasing to God to give him. It was a good thing and part of their offering that pleased God. And this is the case throughout the Torah, throughout the books of the law. Wine was included in blessings for obedience. In Deuteronomy 7.13, it says that God will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. If you obey the Lord and the land that he's giving you, he will increase your wine as well as your children, as well as your flocks, as well as your crops. Those are all good things. Again, we see this in Deuteronomy eleven fourteen. Then the Lord promised, I will send rain for your land in its season the autumn and the spring rains, so that you may gather your grain, new wine, and olive oil. Not only was wine a blessing for obedience, but withholding wine was a curse for disobedience. It was punishment that they wouldn't have new wine. You can find that in Deuteronomy 28. If I read everything I've got, we're never going to get out of here. In Ecclesiastes 9, 7, which is a, a, a book of wisdom, the writer Solomon says, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Later on in Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes in uh, chapter 10, verse 19, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life. It's not difficult as you look at this to see that wine in scripture is a good thing. It's a blessing from God. In Psalm 104, I'm going I'm to read a chunk of this so you can get the feel for the psalm, and then I'll jump to the appropriate text within the psalm. Psalm 104, begin, psalm 104 begins, O Lord my God, you are very great. Or excuse me, no, it doesn't begin that way, my bad. It begins with, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. We just sang about the greatness of our God. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes his clouds, he makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds. He ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it will never be moved. In this song, 
this psalm of worship, talking about the greatness of God and his works and the things that he's done. And verse 14, we read this. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that they may bring food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Having wine in the Bible is as good as having food. It's on the same level of goodness. I mean, this, this psalm is praising God. Well, there's no way you're going to find in how great, how great thou art a, a, a line about wine. But, it, but that's what has, that's, it's in the scriptures. Wine in the Bible is a good thing. It's the abuse of wine that the Bible prohibits. It's interesting because the first instance we see in Scripture about wine and drinking is when Noah got drunk. I mean, there's, there, there's an immediate abuse that's attached with the wine. And yet, later on in Deuteronomy, in Numbers, in um, Ecclesiastes, in, in Psalms, and other, there are other passages that I never talked about. It's viewed as a good thing. Even after the abuse, wine is still seen as a blessing. The conclusion that I can draw from that is that potential abuse is not reason enough for prohibition. God could have saw Noah and this is the guy I used to save the planet. And he's drinking and he can't handle the wine that he's grown from the vineyard. That's it. I'm, I, I will just curse that and no one can ever drink wine again. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. The reality is if potential abuse was reason enough for prohibition, we could never eat. We could never enjoy any marital intimacy. But abuse and the potential for abuse is not reason enough for prohibition in Scripture. Next, we're going to talk about Jesus and wine. Jesus and wine. And this is where many people... Um, say, well, the wine in Jesus' day wasn't al- didn't contain alcohol or did contain just a little bit of alcohol. And the reality is, as I've shown before, that's just not true. That comes from people who have an experience, they have an idea, they have a belief, and they're trying to use Scripture to prop up that belief rather than looking at Scripture to form their belief. In Matthew 11, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus has been going back and forth with the Pharisees, back and forth with the religious leaders, and finally he gets to the point where he's so frustrated. He talks about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a Nazarite. He never drank. He had the Nazarite vow on his life. He never cut his hair. He never drank. There were other prohibitions and other things that that meant. But it's significant 
for this passage. Jesus said, John came neither eating nor drinking. And they said of him, he had a demon. The only way you cannot drink is to have a demon. That's what they would say about him. But the Son of Man, Jesus, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus drank and he was accused of even being a drunkard. Now they, 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 they may have been, been exaggerating. I mean, look what they said about John the Baptist. But look, verse 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Jesus isn't exaggerating there. He's stating a fact. When Jesus came and lived on this earth, he drank wine. Jesus used wine for the Lord's Supper that he commands us to take in remembrance of him. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. Drink this wine, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, if we view wine as being negative in Scripture, that takes away from the significance of Jesus having the Last Supper with his disciples. This is something they did every year all their lives. And in this instance, he gives them a cup that represents blessing. A cup that is filled with something that in their culture represented the blessings of God, celebrating life, joy, and peace. And he says, here, take this, drink of it, for it's my blood of the new covenant. That changes the way we view the Lord's Supper. But not only, he didn't stop there. The next verse, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We're going to be drinking wine in heaven. How does that fit in our worldview? How does it fit in our worldview regarding alcohol to know that Jesus says, when you come to heaven, when you get there with me in my new kingdom, I'm not going to drink wine again until I can do it with everybody. Are we so pious, so caught up into thinking that we're moral or spiritual, that we can't make room for the reality that Jesus drank wine. If we don't have room for that in our theology about wine, then we need to rethink it. We need to take into account that Jesus drank wine and he said, someday I'm going to do it with you again in heaven. Probably the greatest 
um, uh, the greatest scene of Jesus with wine is the wedding at Cana. In John chapter 2, I'll just read you the entire story. It's a miracle that when Jesus turned water into wine. Beginning John chapter 2, on the third day, I'll stop there for some context. This is a particular week early in Jesus' ministry. So if you were to be reading through the Gospel of John, it would say, and the next day, and then later, and then the next day. And so this is the third day of Jesus as he begins his ministry. He's calling his disciples together. His disciples are with him. So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Mary was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, we know that Jesus is from Nazareth. This is in a, this is in a town about five miles away. So this, this is a big deal. This is a big wedding. There's a lot of people here. The whole region has been invited, or people from the whole region, not every individual, but, but from many different towns are coming for this wedding. And so, picking up in verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Jesus, they have no more wine. This was a problem. That wouldn't be a problem for many of our worldview that they ran out of wine. Well, good, they can't drink anymore. That wasn't Mary's attitude. She looked to Jesus, they have no more wine, and she expected him to do something about it. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stones of water, excuse me, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill up the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. In that culture, there was a master of the wedding, a master of the feast. They, they, they celebrate, they did weddings right, all right? All right. Basically a whole week of celebration for the wedding. All right? So they you get a lot of people together, they could go through a lot of alcohol in a week, right? <clears throat> so they took it to the to the to the master of the feast. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And did not know where it came from, though the servants knew where it came from. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, meaning the people have gotten drunk, the people have celebrated for a couple days and have gone through all of the good wine, then they bring out the bad wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. What does that mean? Jesus turned water into good wine, meaning it had alcohol in it. Goes on to say, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. Why? Why did Jesus turn water into wine? I mean. Many people say, well, they drank wine back then because the, the, the water was bad. It, it, was for, it was more healthy for them to drink wine than to drink water. Well, then Jesus could, just could have turned it into good water. 
why would Jesus turn it into wine, turn the water into wine if it was a bad thing? And the thing that the thing that really will throw us for a loop is that Jesus did this in a context where there was a high potential for abuse. I mean, how many gallons of wine did he just make? Six stone water, six stone water jars, each containing 20 to 30 gallons. That's a lot of wine he just made. Jesus doesn't associate himself with the potential abuse. He associates himself with the gift. Wine was a good thing in Scripture. And Jesus did turn water into wine, knowing that people could consume it and get drunk and do stupid and foolish things. Why? Well, there's multiple reasons, but one is because he is associated with the gift and not the abuse. And that goes for all of life, doesn't it? He's not associated with, he's associated with the strength of, the strength of a man is a good thing, right? That we're strong, that we're capable, that we can, we can run, that we can jump, we can move things. But what happens when a man uses that good thing, his strength, to hurt others? He's responsible for it. It's not God's fault. The same thing is true with the wine here. God doesn't associate himself with the abuse. He associates himself with the gift. The gift of strength. The gift of marital intimacy. The gift of food. The gift of relationships. The only way to understand this miracle is for the wine to have be good wine to be an alcoholic beverage because what this is symbolizing is that the first covenant that came was the bad wine and now that Jesus is here he's bringing in a new covenant that is a new wine and it's better than the old that is the point of one of the points of this miracle that Jesus is performing here So wine is a good thing in Scripture. Jesus drank wine. Jesus will drink wine with us in heaven one day. And yet, it is also true, as I said before, the Bible is nuanced about this topic. The Bible is filled with warnings about the abuse of wine and its disastrous results. So much so that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, just listen to this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Meaning, don't listen to people who say, oh yeah, you can do this and be a Christian, it's okay. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Drunkards don't inherit God's kingdom. 
Because that lifestyle of drunkenness proves that they don't know the God of comfort, the God of peace, the God of self-control, the God of order. But that passage doesn't stop there. I, I couldn't quote that and not give you the last sentence. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. He's not saying that you did something long ago and you can't be redeemed from it. He's talking about people who are actively practicing these vices, these sins. One among, one amongst them being drunkenness. Proverbs 21, 17, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man and he who loves wine and oil will not be rich. It's not crude oil, right? That's olive oil. Isaiah 28, 7, talking about the, the priests who drink wine. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. I mean, that's a description of drunkenness, Right? The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. A description of what it means to be drunk. You consume so much alcohol that you stumble in giving judgment. It impairs your ability to judge what's right and wrong. And as we talked about last week, we already have a problem with that, don't we? because of our fallen nature, because of chita, because of pesha, because of avon, we already fail at making moral judgments. And drunkenness adds a layer to that inability to give judgment, to make right decisions. Hosea 4.11, wine takes away understanding. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler. And whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Isaiah 5. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drinks. They're counted among the wicked. Perhaps one of the most well-known warnings that the Bible gives about drunkenness is found in Proverbs 23. Be not among drunkards, those who drink too much, or among gluttons. It's drunkards and gluttons in the same thing. We really like to rail on drunkenness and alcohol, but eh, we don't talk too much about what it means to be a glutton, do we? I'll just let that sit there. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber, with, and slumber will clothe them with rags. It goes on, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. So the answer to the question is drunkards, alcoholics. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. 
Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. Meaning, you can go down to the depths and you can go up high when you're drunk. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I didn't feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. The warnings that the Bible gives for alcoholism and drunkenness are stern. They are sobering. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 18, I mentioned it earlier, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. I find that verse very informing. He says, do not get drunk with wine, and he gives the reason. For that is debauchery. Well, what is debauchery? Debauchery is losing self-control. So he's defining what it means to be drunk. To be drunk is to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. As we saw Noah uncovering himself in his tent, he wouldn't normally do that, but because he had too much wine, he did. So you are drunk when you are doing things you would not normally do. But notice it doesn't say don't drink. It says don't get drunk, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. As alcohol influences us as people, the Holy Spirit is to influence us. He's making a comparison between drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit. Before I move on, I will say that for the blessing that wine is, God has a lot of warnings, but never a prohibition. There's never a prohibition in Scripture across the board that says do not drink wine. As a leader, kings were not supposed to drink wine when giving judgment. Priests were not supposed to drink wine when performing their priestly duties. But the restriction, the prohibition, was only for a time. Does that fit? Does that fit what we think about wine? There's one other thing that must be said. And that deals with the leaders of the church. Paul gives qualifications for pastors and for deacons. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, for pastors, he says, Therefore an overseer, a pastor, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. He goes on to list some more qualifications. But drunkenness is in this one. In 1 Timothy 3.8, just a few verses later, he gives the qualifications for deacons. He says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, 
not addicted to much wine, and not greedy for dishonest gain. Even the leaders of God's church, he doesn't give across the board prohibition and restriction to drinking. He says not a drunkard. They don't drink to the point where they lose control of who they are. Not addicted to much wine. It's not an issue for them. So here's, you have decisions to make. How does this fit into what you believe the Bible says about wine, about alcohol? Are there adjustments you need to make in your thinking? And you want to know what? It could be either way. It could go either way. You could could actually say, based on those warnings, I may need to cut back a little bit. I might be in danger of being a drunk. See, we have this idea of what a drunk is. It's a slob who walks down the side of the road downtown, slobbering on everything and saying terrible things to people. Or maybe he's a jokester. Alcohol affects people differently. That's not what the Bible qualifies a drunk as. The Bible qualifies a drunk as somebody who is controlled by the alcohol. They've had too much to drink and they've lost control of themselves. They're saying things they wouldn't otherwise say. They're okay with doing things they wouldn't be okay with doing if they hadn't had alcohol. And there's one other thing that we must decide. We need to decide what we believe as a congregation about drinking. And we need to make sure that our documents, our governing documents, reflect that. Right now, I'm unqualified to be your pastor. Did you know that? Based on our founding documents. It says that I can't drink. I'm okay with drinking wine. I'm okay with having a beer. It says that the deacons are not allowed to drink. And in fact, the church covenant that applies to every member of this body states, we also engage to abstain from the sale and use of intoxicating drinks as a beverage. Here's the deal. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think that that statement accurately reflects what the Bible teaches about alcohol. Regardless of my personal beliefs, regardless of whether or not I am okay with having a drink, I don't think that accurately portrays the Bible's teaching on alcohol. So what I want to do is part of the vision committee, if the church sanctions it, to rewrite those statements. Because I don't think we should be adding to the Bible. I don't think we should say the Bible doesn't say it's restricted, but we're going to be more holy than the Bible and say it should be restricted. We're going to be more holy than Jesus who came drinking and eating and say, no, we can't, we can't have a drink. What we can say we, in, we also engage to abstain from drunkenness. 
We can say that the pastors and deacons are to not be to not get drunk. That's what we should say. But because we are remnants, because we are fall in line from the history of Dr. Welch and the temperance movement from the 1800s, we're still living in the 1800s when it comes to this teaching. And I think that we need to come back. I'm not telling anybody, you can go drink. I'm not asking anybody to do that. That's for each individual person to decide for themselves. What I'm saying is let's have a solid base and foundation for what the Bible tells us about alcohol. And then each person is free to make their own decision. That's all I have, so let's pray. Dear Father, I do thank you for your word. Lord, I think, I'm thankful that it, it, it talks about such specific details of our life, even to the point of what we put in our mouths. There's nothing more specific than that. Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to navigate through the waters of what your word says about alcohol, both as individuals that we would seek to honor you in our daily lives and not succumb to, to the abuse of alcohol. Father, I pray that you would help us to, as a church, Lord, to have our document accurately reflect what we believe the scriptures teach, and that as a community of believers, we would hold true to that document, Lord, in so much as it reflects your word. Lord, I'm thankful for this church, Lord, I pray that you bless it. I pray that you'd use us to shine a light in the community of Glasgow for your truth, for the gospel, and not get hung up on issues that are not central to your kingdom. Lord, I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to